On June 14, 2006, police in Millbrae, California, came to do a welfare check on Suzanne Wagner. Suzanne, a part-time hairdresser, had never missed a day of work in 40 years. So when she failed to show up, people at the salon where she worked part-time immediately knew something was wrong. Officer Robert Raw went to the Wagner's home at 623 Lomita Avenue at around 12.30 p.m. Millbrae is an upscale suburb of San Francisco. The median home value is over a million dollars, and not much happens there. Officer Raw knocked on the door, but got no answer. Then he noticed that the mailbox was full. Mail was spilling over onto the front porch. And then he saw that some of the newspapers were dated the day before, June 13th. Now, almost certainly starting to suspect something was terribly wrong, he went around to his side window and looked inside. That's when he saw a woman, naked from the waist down, lying on her back in a pool of blood. This was the body of 68-year-old Suzanne Wagner. Police came to the house, which immediately became a crime scene. When they entered the living room, they found her husband, 78-year-old Fernand. Fernand, a successful restaurant owner and investor, and Suzanne had been married for over a decade. Friends and family said they adored each other. So detectives were trying to figure out who would have wanted to kill them in such a horrific manner, and why. Forensic investigators determined that Fernand had been brutally beaten, and his throat was slit. The pathologist stated that Fernand died from a combination of blunt force injury and a six-inch cut across his jugular vein. He had been hit dozens of times. So many times that investigators could not figure out what kind of weapon had been used for the beatings or the neck wound. Fernand sustained 21 blunt injuries to the head and neck area. He had fractured ribs and lacerations to both arms and hands. He had a six-inch wound on his neck. Suzanne had also been badly beaten, with 27 separate areas of trauma to her head and neck. Then, after beating her, the killer had strangled her with their hands. She also had bruising, scraping, and other injuries on her torso, including nine broken ribs. According to the pathologist, her skull fractures were so extreme, they were the type that is usually found in car crashes. The opening of her vagina had been slashed with a sharp cutting instrument, and all of this was happening while she was still alive. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. At the home of Fernand and Suzanne Wagner, investigators were piecing together evidence from a horrific crime scene. Friends said that Fernand and Suzanne were one of those couples who seemed as if they were destined to be together. Each of them had led an interesting and fascinating life prior to meeting, and once they got together, they created that special kind of synergy that just seemed to be soulmates. According to Fernand's obituary on Legacy.com, he was born in Germany. As a young man during World War II, he was conscripted into the German army and sent to the Russian front. But Fernand deserted the army. He braved extreme danger of bullets and landmines and walked from Russia back to France. When he got back, Fernand joined the Free French Forces and fought to liberate France from the Nazis. He later immigrated to Montreal, Canada and embarked on a long and successful career as a chef and restaurant owner. Eventually, he ended up in San Francisco 
quote, befriending people from all walks of life, including close friend Rocky Marciano, end quote. In the late 60s, he opened a restaurant called La Sagone in San Diego. Suzanne Chadneau was born and raised in Belfort, France. She came to the U.S. in the early 60s and became a hairdresser. Now, friends and family say she loved her profession, and she also enjoyed traveling the world and throwing parties for her friends. She was always making sure that her husband and everyone else around her ate and drank well. The obituary read, quote, Most importantly, her existence was so completely intertwined and complemented by her husband, Fernand. Together, they were an unforgettable couple, showing elegance and class in every situation. Their loyalty and concern for family and friends were unsurpassed, end quote. The couple had no children, but they treated their friends like family. According to the obituary, they, quote, created a beautiful life, entertaining family and friends in their home with epic six-hour dinner parties. The finest French champagne and wine flowed all evening. Fernand and Suzanne's work ethic and wise investments allowed them to build a comfortable life together, which they fully took advantage of, traveling to all parts of the world and returning annually to France to visit family, end quote. But they never got the chance. A killer had tragically cut their golden years short. Now the police had to figure out why. And as they analyzed the crime scene, they were noticing that certain things didn't seem to add up. On the surface, it looked like it could be a robbery-slash-sexual assault gone wrong. According to court papers, the den where the bodies were found was messy. There was blood everywhere, pulled on the floor and spattered around on the walls. Someone had scattered clothes all around the room. But despite the frenzied bloodbath in the den... The rest of the house, other than an upstairs rug that was a little bunched up, seemed tidy, according to police. Police found more bloodstains in the bathroom, on the floor, the door, the sink, and the toilet seat cover. At this point, detectives noticed that some of the bloodstains appeared to be diluted, as if someone had been washing their hands. They also found some evidence that made it appear as if the killer wanted something from the upstairs office. Drawers were open up there, and a bloody footprint could be seen on one of the steps. A knife was missing from a knife block in the kitchen. Detectives suspected that this could have been the murder weapon used to kill Fernand. But his wounds were so severe, it was really impossible to know for sure. Fernand's watch with the gold coin face was also missing, along with the Wagner's Cadillac DeVille. But nothing else had been stolen. Investigators found Suzanne's underwear near her body and noticed that the underwear and her pantyhose were balled up as if the killer had taken them off together. They found bloodstains on her underwear, but there was no semen. The deeper they got into the forensic evidence, the more detectives started to suspect that this crime scene had been staged to look like a robbery and sexual assault. Police used the car's GPS system to track the vehicle and were able to trace it to Daly City. When they found the car, they saw more signs of foul play inside. Detectives found a woman's pearl ring under the right side of the front passenger seat with blood on it and more blood on the passenger seat itself. The forensic team processed the evidence and sent the swabs away to see if they could get a DNA match. Meanwhile, police started building a timeline of Fernand and Suzanne's last movements and talking to the people closest to them. Since the Wagners had no children, this included several of their friends and their employees. Then, on June 16th, police got a call from someone who claimed to have some very disturbing information. Her name was Joy DeSomber, and she was terrified. She said she had reason to believe that her husband, Joseph Kua, had murdered the Wagners. 
Joseph Kua had known the Wagners for 25 years. Could he really have murdered the people who treated him like a son? The information that Joy DeSombre gave police would crack the case wide open. Police investigating the horrific double murders of Fernand and Suzanne Wagner were taking a closer look at 53-year-old Joseph Kua. Joy DeSombre told police she met Joseph Kua in 2002 when she was a 28-year-old divorced mother of two small children. Joy told the investigation discovery show, Who the Bleep Did I Marry?, that when she started chatting to Joseph on Match.com, he stood out due to his charm. She said he presented himself as charming and wealthy. And in the beginning he could not do enough for her and her two children. With his Ivy League education and Armani suits, he seemed, she said, perfect. Joseph was a native of Hawaii. He lived in Burlingame, near San Francisco in Northern California. Joy was based in San Diego, about a six-hour drive away. Joseph told her that he was a mega-successful commercial real estate broker. The couple started a long-distance relationship, and after a whirlwind romance, they got engaged. Joseph became a father figure to Joy's kids. He participated in sports with them. He cooked them healthy dinners. He taught them to read. Joy described him as, quote, an all-American dad, end quote. But she said she did begin to notice some disturbing behavior. First of all, Joseph was vague about what he actually did for a living. And while at first she wrote this off to his job stress, she said eventually she started to feel like he was hiding things. Still, she took it as a good sign that they always seemed to have more than enough money to do whatever they wanted. So she told herself, clearly, he must know what he's doing. They leased cars, bought a house and two boats, and took expensive family vacations. Joseph didn't have that many close friends, but he did talk a lot about his business partner, Fernand Wagner, and Fernand's wife, Suzanne. He told Joy that he was like a son to the Wagners. In fact, he said they trusted him so implicitly, they had made him a trustee in their will. He told Joy that he worked for the Wagners in Burlingame, which is why he had to keep spending part of his week in San Mateo County. Joseph and Joy began planning their dream destination wedding on the Hawaiian island of Kauai, where Joseph was originally from. But then, Joy found out she was pregnant, and in October 2003, she gave birth to the couple's first child, a daughter. They named her Kauai, after the island. A few months later, they got married in a small ceremony in Las Vegas. Joy's mother, Linda, told Who the Bleep, that Joseph gave a moving speech during the intimate ceremony and talked about how he had found his soulmate. They settled into family life and bought a four-bedroom home in the San Diego suburb of Hemet. Joy worked as an auto adjuster, but Joseph continued to control all of the couple's finances and pay all the bills. But Joy started to notice that whenever she tried to pin Joseph down about anything, his work or family finances, he started to show signs of an ugly temper. She told Who the Bleep, quote, It was a line not to be crossed. There were a lot of lines I was never to cross when we were together, end quote. Joseph was also still making the hours-long commute to Northern California, and he refused to allow Joy and the kids to relocate so the family could live together full-time. And on top of that, according to Joy, he took to turning his phone off, sometimes for long periods of time. Joy was torn. Joseph seemed so happy with her and with the kids, and they were still basically newlyweds. But she could not ignore her gut feeling. Then she started to wonder if he could be having an affair. And in early 2005, 
her worst fears were confirmed when Joy got a call from a woman in Northern California. Joy was shocked when the woman, whose name was Tracy Story, said that she had been in a relationship with Joseph for two years. Joseph had even signed a domestic partnership with this woman, which, the TV program points out, in the state of California is basically equal to a legal marriage. And Tracy told Joy that Joseph had said he planned to divorce her, but never got around to filing the papers. Joy was devastated. But when she confronted Joseph, he blamed her. He said that the chaos at home with Joy had caused him to find someone who did not have small children running around. Joy had had enough, and she told Joseph that she wanted a divorce. But Joseph threatened her. He said he would take everything she had, including custody of her daughter, if she left. That's when Joy said she started to realize that her husband wasn't just a nice guy with a few dark secrets, but a complete stranger. She had fallen in love with a psychopath's mask, and the person underneath was starting to come out, and he was terrifying. Joy started squirreling away small amounts of money. Over the next year and a half, she would send money to her mother. She was hoping to build a nest egg and have enough money to hire a decent attorney. In 2006, Joy was biding her time working, taking her relationship day by day, and trying to find a way to split that would not provoke her husband Joseph's rage. Then came that fateful day in July when she got the shocking news. Joseph called Joy from Northern California and told her that Fernand Wagner had been murdered. Joseph told her that Fernand had been fatally shot. Joy was totally shocked, and while she was still trying to process the information, she said Joseph seemed eerily calm. Joy said she then asked what happened to Suzanne. And Joseph said, quote, Oh, she's dead too, end quote. At the time, Joy said she assumed that her husband was in shock. But when he eventually came home and she started asking him questions about why he wasn't at Fernand's helping the family handle affairs, he blew her off. She said that he brought some furniture he'd picked up for the kitchen, as if this was just an average night. Once he'd emailed some condolences to Fernand's family, he ate some fast food, worked out, and went to bed. The next morning, Joy noticed that Joseph's right hand was swollen and purple and had cuts on it. She would later testify, according to the East Bay Times, that the hand was so swollen and distorted that it looked like a Mickey Mouse glove. When she asked him about the injuries, he told her he got the bruises on his shin rollerblading and that a refrigerator had fallen on his hand. Later, Joy's mother called her to let her know that the Wagner's murder was all over TV and that Fernand had not been shot. The couple had been beaten to death. Now Joy's worst fears had been confirmed. She knew that Joseph was responsible. She was scared. After the tip from Joy, investigators started looking into Joseph's past. They needed to know, why would Joseph kill his business partner and his wife when they had been so good to him and they were making so much money? They quickly figured out that Joseph wasn't the Wagner's business partner. He was actually their handyman. The truth was the couple paid Joseph around $525 a month to do property management for them. And they let Joseph live rent-free in an apartment in a building they owned in Burlingame. Joseph wasn't earning millions. In reality, Joseph listed the $14,000 that the Wagners paid him yearly as his only income on tax returns. A forensic accountant went through Joseph's records and discovered that he had been funding his lifestyle by stealing huge amounts of money from the Wagners for years. His method was relatively simple and low-tech. He started skimming rents from the Wagners' rental properties. In at least one instance, a former tenant testified 
that Joseph had told him he should start making his rent checks out to Joseph directly, and not for Nan's company. Investigators say that Joseph embezzled around $238,000 between January 2004 and June 2006, when the Wagners were murdered. Everything that Joseph and Joy did was funded by the Wagners, including the mortgage on his house, car loans, boats, docking fees, and all those family vacations. But Joseph wasn't just living a double life at work. He was living a double life at home as well. Joseph told his girlfriend, Tracy Story, that he was a property manager and investment advisor. He claimed that he co-owned the Burlingame building where he lived with his partner, Fernand Wagner, and claimed to earn $600,000 a year. However, she told investigators that, at times, he said his net worth was actually a lot higher, somewhere between $11 million and $23 million. He told Tracy that he had been in a fight in Mexico with a bunch of gang-type men, and that he'd killed several of them with his bare hands. Now, according to California law, wives cannot be forced to testify against their husbands. But they didn't need to force Joy. She willingly cooperated with prosecutors and testified against Joseph when his trial began at San Mateo County Superior Court. She talked about his conflicting stories over the years and his belief that he would inherit a substantial amount of money if Fernand and Suzanne died. At the time of the couple's death, Joseph believed that he was the executor of the will and a trustee. In fact, they had removed Joseph as a trustee back in 2005. Joyce said on the stand that she was terrified of her husband. When Joseph told her that the Wagners had been shot in the head, she explained that she tried to tell herself that her fears about him doing the unthinkable were irrational. Joseph also had Joy convinced that he was monitoring her conversations and had tapped her phone and her car. Police discovered that before Joseph came home, he had apparently made a getaway plan. They found an airline reservation that he made for a flight on the evening of June 13, 2006, from Oakland to Ontario, Canada. But instead of flying, he drove to San Luis Obispo and checked into a hotel at around 1 a.m. on the morning of June 14. By now, Joseph was clearly getting desperate for money. He started calling Fernand and Suzanne's relatives hours later. Joseph called the family, according to court papers, on June 14th and again on June 16, 2006. He said that Fernand and Suzanne had placed him in charge of their business affairs and had made him executor of their estate and asked Fernand's nephew, Mark Wagner, for his help to go to the bank. Although he didn't explain what help he needed or why he needed to go to the bank. On June 17th, Joseph called Dan Doherty, one of the Wagner's commercial tenants in the San Jose building. According to Dan, Joseph sounded nervous and upset and claimed that the Wagner family wanted to sell the building fast. He wanted Doherty and his partners to raise the money. Now, according to court documents, the Wagners did make Joseph a trustee in 1993, but they removed him in 2005. But he was still listed as the broker of the Wagners' three commercial properties, but only in the event that both Fernand and Suzanne were deceased. If the properties had been sold, Joseph could have collected a commission of around $300,000. But Joseph never got the chance to make that sale. He was arrested on June 18, 2006, Father's Day, in Oxnard, California. At the time of his arrest, according to court papers, he was driving a pickup truck with a stolen license plate. And when detectives asked him if he knew why he was being arrested, he allegedly said, 
quote, I have an idea, end quote. Inside the truck, Joseph had written a letter to Joy that was found by detectives. In the letter, according to court documents, Joseph said he had not killed Fernand or Suzanne. He claimed that he had found them already dead in their home on Tuesday afternoon. He said he didn't call the police because he, quote, got scared that he would be the prime suspect because he was known to be there at the house, end quote. Joseph said that he was afraid, quote, the police would suspect me for what I found out, end quote. The letter also stated that it was Joseph's last will and testament. A lot of red-collar criminals, and narcissists in general, leave these kind of fake confession letters. They're hoping to misdirect investigators. But despite the drama and the implied threat of suicide, Joseph was alive and well when the police found him. Detective Frank Taylor interviewed Joseph. Like Joy, Detective Taylor noted the injuries to Joseph's hand and right foot. And also, he saw a wound on Joseph's right ring finger that was about three-fourths of an inch long and had scabbed over. Joseph's trial began on June 2, 2008. He pleaded not guilty. And his double life was coming back to bite him in court when both his wife and his girlfriend testified against him. Tracy Story testified that she was with Joseph on June 12. She said she had dinner with him and went to bed with him. She saw Joseph without his clothes on that night, and she said she did not see any visible injuries to his body. She said that he had not told her that he and Joy were married when they started their relationship. Tracy said she got a call from Joseph on June 13th, the day Fernand and Suzanne were murdered. She said he sounded upset. She said she also talked to him on June 17th and said that he seemed to be, quote, in very bad shape, end quote. Tracy said at the time she assumed he was upset because they had broken up. When Joy took the stand, she repeated the story of her husband's bizarre behavior and his strange injuries and gave details of all the lies she caught him in over the years. Though he never admitted to killing Fernand and Suzanne, he made other odd statements, she said. She told the court that in one conversation she had with Joseph in jail in the summer of 2006, Joseph had said, quote, It's not like I shot them or anything, end quote, according to an article in the Daily Journal newspaper. Then there was the DNA evidence. Investigators performed tests on bloodstains from the Wagner's residence in their Cadillac, and the forensic examiner testified he had determined that Joseph was the single source of the bloodstain on the passenger seat of the car. The sample taken from the bathroom door showed contributions of genetic material from at least two individuals, and both Fernand and Joseph were identified as possible contributors. The bloodstain on Suzanne's underwear showed a DNA mixture from at least three individuals, which, though experts could not determine with 100% certainty, they believed were a match to Suzanne, Fernand, and Joseph. Fernand and Joseph could not be excluded as contributors, they said. Suzanne could not be excluded as a minor DNA contributor. The defense attorneys tried to discredit the forensic evidence. They pointed out that there was trace evidence found at the scene that didn't match Joseph's DNA. And they said a bloody footprint was found that didn't match the shoes that Joseph wore on the day of the murders. But the forensic expert stated that for the DNA on the bathroom door that they were able to identify, the odds of another contributor of the DNA pattern they matched to Joseph was 1 in 49 million for African Americans, 1 in 1 million for Caucasians, and 1 in 1.6 million for Hispanics. The defense also tried to discredit Joy by asking about her intentions to profit from the case. She readily admitted that she did hope to write a book about being married to a psychopath, like she saw in the Scott Peterson trial. 
But the most compelling evidence could be found by following the money trail. And the prosecutors did a great job of helping the jury navigate what had really been going on behind the scenes. The jury heard that in 2004 and 2005, the Wagners had received gross rental income of approximately $820,000 from the three rental properties they owned. In early June 2006, Fernand learned from his bank, Wells Fargo, that the cash balance in the business account was lower than he anticipated. He and Suzanne were concerned. This meant they potentially would not be able to make their quarterly tax payments. On Saturday, June 10, 2006, three days before the murders, Fernand met with a local Wells Fargo branch manager. That's when he learned that Joseph had been making deposits and faxing Fernand copies of the receipts that cut off the bottom portion. This left out key information, like which teller processed the transaction, the time, and the exact dollar amount. So the manager asked Fernand to get some original deposit receipts so they could compare them and investigate further. She told him to come back on Tuesday the 13th and testified that she saw him again in the bank on either the 12th or the 13th and again reminded him she still needed those slips. Fernand said he planned to get them from his manager. Police believe that on the day of the murders, Fernand confronted Joseph about the missing money. They also had other evidence that Joseph had been the last person to see the Wagners alive. Police tracked down one of the last people known to have spoken to Fernand and Suzanne, the couple's insurance broker, Edith Edmonds. On June 13th, Edith called the Wagner's house at around 9.25 a.m. She talked to Suzanne. Suzanne told her that Joseph was at the house. Edith asked to talk to him. She had actually known Joseph for years, and when she spoke to him, she congratulated him on his new baby. She said everyone seemed fine, and the conversations were completely normal, if a little brief. Investigators spoke to two other people, Lorraine Peterson, who said she talked to Suzanne sometime around noon to wish her a happy birthday, and Norbert, Fernand's brother, who said he talked to both Fernand and Suzanne sometime between 10.30 and 11 a.m. But it was Edith's testimony that was the most crucial because it put Joseph in the house at around the time Fernand and Suzanne were killed. Joseph's attorneys argued that he just happened to stumble upon the dead bodies, and they say he fled the scene because he believed that he would be suspected of the murders. Red-collar expert Frank Perry wrote an article called Red-collar Crime in the International Journal of Psychological Studies about the difference between instrumental and reactive violence. Basically, instrumental violence can be thought of as a means to an end. So the killer wants something. They kill someone because they want money or to accomplish a goal, something like that. Reactive violence is done in the heat of the moment. These are the crimes of passion. Perry writes, quote, Do red-collar offenders engage in a more reactive, violent manner, or do they take their time in an instrumental manner to think through how to execute their homicidal plans? End quote. Now, because the crime scene at the Wagners was so horrific, it would be easy to conclude that it could have been reactive. The killer could have been interrupted during a robbery gone wrong and flown into a rage, for example. Experts who've studied crime claim that in most violent crimes, perpetrators are more likely to commit an instrumental crime against a stranger and a reactive crime against a family member or close loved one. But according to Perry, one of the fascinating things about red-collar crime is that this logic gets totally turned on its head. He writes, quote, Yet what is factually interesting in red-collar crime cases is that the exact opposite holds true for the majority of cases. The offender knew the victims, reflective of reactive violence scenarios, but instead very instrumental in nature, 
end quote. So Joseph killed Fernand and Suzanne, one after the other. Forensic experts testified it would have taken an average person 9 to 12 minutes to die under those circumstances. So Suzanne was almost certainly alive when she watched the man she loved and devoted her life to dying beside her as the man she treated like a son beat her, cut her open, and squeezed the life out of her. And for what? Joseph killed Suzanne and Fernand because he didn't want them to discover his fraud, and basically because he wanted to keep stealing from them. He lashed out violently, then took the time to stage the crime scene to look like a sexual assault, wash his hands, steal the car, and then, much later, go home, eat a huge meal, and according to his wife, Joy, sleep like a baby. On June 27th, the jury convicted Joseph of the double murders. The DA opted not to seek the death penalty. So Joseph is serving out two consecutive life sentences with no possibility of parole in a maximum security prison in California. Joy divorced Joseph in March 2009. She's trying to rebuild her life. She moved to Des Moines, Iowa with her three children, according to the Mercury News. In 2012, she did an interview with Patch.com in which she discussed her history with a man she called the charming psychopath and talked about how he had shattered her family and her children's worldview. Despite her issues with Joseph, she said, to the kids, he had always been father of the year, loving, involved in their lives, and very present. Joy co-wrote a book called What Did I Do? Stories from the Hearts of Children Whose Parents Are Incarcerated and discussed how she hoped that speaking out would help her children process their trauma. Joseph didn't just shatter her trust, Joy said. He ruined her financially. She also learned that Joseph had stolen $114,000 from her. Her home was foreclosed on, and their bank accounts were cleaned out. So all those expensive trips and gifts that he lavished on her and her children, the ones she was so touched by, were actually being funded by her. Over the years, she says that Joseph has continued to file what she calls frivolous lawsuits against her. But the missing money was only the tip of the iceberg. Joy said that after Joseph's arrest terrifying secrets about the man she thought she knew continued to emerge. At one point, police found child pornography on his computer. Joy said, quote, each day revealed some new horror, end quote. Joseph continues to claim to this day that he's innocent. Someone else murdered Fernand and Suzanne, and he just happened to stumble in and find the bodies. His attorneys motioned for a new trial, but on December 18, 2008, the motion was denied. A look into Joseph's background showed that he had a petty theft conviction in 1973. But, as in so many of these cases, nothing to indicate that he was capable of murdering two of his best friends in cold blood. But after reading research into red-collar criminals and thinking about what he did to two of his closest friends, I can't help but think about one more anecdote that Joy relayed to the IDTV show. She said that on the day she called the authorities, she was due to meet her husband on the boat with her children. Incredibly, she made the decision to go ahead with her plans. She stayed overnight with him on that boat with her children. And she played it cool while her mother continued to call the police tip line. We've seen so many red-collar cases where the offender annihilates an entire family. So Joy's decision to not confront Joseph may have saved her life and the life of her kids. Joy seemed to have realized this too. According to the East Bay Times... She described her husband at trial by saying, quote, It's like the beauty of the ocean. Everything looks perfect, but there are some mean waves and sharks beneath.
Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>